Here we are at the ending of the uh, fourth full day and night on our retreat. Lots happened. We seem to be swimming through countless states. We seem to be making our way through the retreat, and yet also it could be said that uh, nothing much has happened. that the retreat is moving through us. That first night together, the anticipation, the beginning, the blessing chants, that seems so perhaps real, yet now it's a memory. The beginning What's going to happen tomorrow? I mean, I've only got four days. You know, winter's coming. <laughs> we got to get some ins- inside action going here. And that future speculation wells up, arises in this presence, and as it is said, and was said day after day in our monastic life, and now is the knowing. Yesterday is a memory. Tomorrow is unknown. Now is the knowing. The memories the speculations of the future, all arise and cease as part of this vibrant presence. Yet I do want to honor the conventional form. We're we're about halfway through. We're in the heart of the retreat. There's been some wonderful work done been really a privilege for both of us to be here, share this space, get knocked around by our conditions. But we're still here. I feel like handing out congratulations. (laughs) Breathing with, relaxing with. Yes, we've been knocked over by some excitements and some, it's too difficult, and I give my life, what what the heck, all my lives, countless future lives to the Dhamma. (laughs) And then sometimes it feels like one person described one sitting as the graveyard slot. (laughs) (laughs) It 
is bleak. <laughs> An eternal, interminable hell. Oh God, get me out of here. We get turned by some, but also through this staying with the sacred boundary. We've had the chance to see some of the states turn. Rather than being turned, tumbled, entangled, this is the essence of religere, of religion, of yoga, of the temple, the template. We have the opportunity to see some shifts. Ah! Noticing some states that so many of you have shared that, that would tangle us up when we just say, oh, that's, that's just that. And not being so invested in it, it becomes what it is, a state. So we might, you know, not, as Tanisha was saying, you know, what did you do? Well, I sat and I walked and we stretched. Really, it was an incredible retreat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, uh, as we try to put it into words and they go, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The galaxy was in your navel, was it? It doesn't sound like much, but... The, there has been, I tell you, an accumulation of collect, a collective deepening of presence. So I encourage, and that's a blessing already. It already helps purify our body-mind. And that's good, even if we don't do anything else. It's, it's good. But I want to encourage us to use this time because... With that precious composure, now we have the opportunity to continue deepening in the liberating insight, that which can free us from the endless cycles of just going up and down, and it, 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 it's great, and it's, oh God, it's wonderful. So let's re-determine to, okay, Let's keep going. We've been exploring this calming, stabilizing. This is what I like to call cultivating primary relationship. We might think, oh, wouldn't it be nice if everyone, if the lion laid down with the lamb and if everyone was at peace. I mean, it's a beautiful thought. We have these lovely thoughts and then we (laughs) get in an argument with our neighbor or get frustrated with our partner. It's lovely to have aspirations and I'm not against them. But in primary relationship, we're learning how to relate to, be in connection with the primary elements of our existence, body, the time to 
find, stay with, welcome, breathe in, with body, with form, with movement. with energy, high energy, low energy, interest, discouragement, sluggishness, and feeling, really learning. We might people, some people can write essays on it, but to act, you know, to actually learn to be with uh, that which is pleasing, not just get so excited about it, Notice ourselves get excited, notice that change, and also notice what it's like to be with something that's painful. Learn how to relate to moods and thoughts, perceptions, moments of knowing. That's, you know, wanting to be peaceful, but we're actually building the foundation of skillful relationship because we're learning how to connect, relate. If one can't sustain a connection with our body, with feeling, with the moments of our life, then how are we going to be at peace with others? Cultivating a bit of skill with letting go for a time of longing and distress with regard to the world and just to stabilize this connection, this unification, this gathering of the mind connected to the body. The heart of awareness receiving the body, the thinking mind directing us the heart receiving, feeling out, adjusting. Some of you have experienced, you know, some uh, the blessings of that. And almost everyone, I think, has appreciated just the space to be. But sometimes as we start to get calm, we can certainly, this was my experience, that's such a delicious feeling, the smooth. When disturbance subsides. Not really wanting anything, when the hindrances of not wanting. Wanting's not really, not not wanting. Not really sluggish. Not restless. Not caught up in thinking when there's moments of I just thought, yes. And I used to clamp on that state like a snapping turtle. And then get more refined, more refined, more refined, and somehow wanting that to explode into an enlightenment that never shifts. But that would be classically called wrong view. Kitty sorrow. Not really understanding. 
that calm is, is beautiful, but it's a, impermanent. It's a state, just like the weather. It's skillful, it's a beautiful skill of little by little over the course of our life we learn just in little ways how to compose, to relax, to savor. That's a beautiful thing that can refresh us. Help us return to our ground. But if we, if we just attach just to that state, it just bring distress. That's why it's so important to combine this, this practice always with this uh, reflection, contemplation, what's called vipassana, what we've been noticing the changing nature. I grew up on Lake Chickamauga, off the Tennessee River. As children, we had a boat on the lake. We'd go canoeing, water skiing. But on calm days and a summer's evening, the light's fading. The lake's sometimes just like glass. And you feel like you just whisper and the sound. You can almost hear a voice from, feels like a mile away, a quiet voice. Remember, that's such a delicious state. And then so often, you know, you then hear a motorboat coming, another boat, motorboat coming. And I'm sure when I was out there skiing sometime, I was disturbing someone else's calm. But wanting, wanting the lake always to be calm, wanting always to be calm. It is the nature of states to change. The foundation of the insight practice of taking some of this gatheredness that we've cultivated. The foundation that opens into all the insights of not-self and emptiness, all the profound ones. Oh, Kitty Saul, can't you just skip ahead to the deep stuff? All the deep insights come from the deepening recognition of change the changing nature of conditions, what the Buddha called anicca. The cornerstone of the insight practice is to use some of the composures to reflect on what's called the three characteristics, tilakana. And it's interesting the way the, the Buddha frames it. It's in the language. Anicca, it means, uh, it, the prefix uh means not. Nicha, it's not permanent. The next one is dukkha, unsatisfactory. It's sometimes translated as suffering, but it's not able to satisfy us. Again, it's dukkha, 
Du means apart from ka, the perfect. It's not. You can't grab it and keep it that way because it keeps shifting. The third one's a, natta, a, which is not. Atta, it's not substantial. It's not mine. It's not a me. It's anatta. It's not a self. It's coming, going. But all the deep insights come out of change. We might think, oh God, I did this. Not to disturb you, Kitty Sorrow, I don't want to interrupt your flow, but I did that last retreat. Uh, change, you know, that was interesting. Can we... Emptiness? I've got to tell you, my first talk in Johannesburg, Tanisha and I just came to South Africa and we're a bit nervous. We were invited to teach there. Now we've been there 20-something years. But our first talk, getting ready, and then some people file in, and then one guy, big hefty guy, comes in with a big gun on his hip, sits right down in the front, <laughs> looking at me. I, I think I tried to talk about change. <laughs> and he afterwards said, what about emptiness? <laughs> Anything you say. <laughs> no, but uh, the, we, you know, we all, if we passed out sheets of paper, you know, does, uh, is the day permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. Is the English... Blue sky, permanent or impermanent? Impermanent. It's my bank balance, permanent or impermanent. We would all get a hundred out of a hundred. On some conceptual level, we know. But in this primary relationship, in our connection with the actuality of our existence, what stands forth, what we experience, when we actually connect with and recognize the changing nature. And that's why there's been so many lovely breakthroughs as we've stayed with the silence, giving ourselves permission not to get so lost in stuff, but to keep listening, to keep returning to listening. And the sittings and the walkings and the schedule will have states build up and then seems like, oh, but we'll have the chance to notice the shift. It's not a huge shift. As we were saying the other day, you know, calming and insight sound like such separate things, but we can even write with being with the breathing, just make the slightest shift. And the Buddha encourages this. When our simplicity of our practice can then turn to liberation, as we breathe in and out, we can stay connected to the recognition of change. With the sensations as they swell and subside. Swell and subside. It's rather than getting so lost in the storyline, 
to start to notice the, the characteristic, the construct. Like right now, the Friday night Kitty Sorrow Dharma talk to really notice, notice the change. Notice how, you know, each word, words keep dissolving. And the sounds keep arising and dissolving. And that this experience of me on retreat, halfway through, do I have time to get that insight in before I'm back into the fray? can even notice that thought pattern coming and going. Not only is sound changing, but our sight of this room, the eyes changing the focus, blinking, mixing with the listening. So sight and listening are mixing, braided in, woven into streams of sensations of our body, clothing touching our skin, that aching hip, that what's it going to do? Sight and sound and sensation, feeling tones, mixed in with moods, being interested or not interested or so if we actually look at the actuality of this experience, it's like a waterfall cascading streams of change. And guess what? Wherever we get to, even if we're on Mars, the moon, the most sacred place on the planet. Back home, sights and sounds and sensations and perceptions streaming, and yet we imagine we're going to get somewhere. Like me wanting to get to success. It's like if we Go up to a waterfall. There's a waterfall on our amazing mountain that we live on when it really rains in the summer. We live on an ancient sacred mountain in the Drakensberg, the Dragon Mountains. But if you come up to the waterfall, you can be in awe of it. But can you grab it? Can you own it? Yet actually, as we approach this life of ours, this streaming of sound and sensation and perception and thought, it's a waterfall. When we lose touch with the actuality, then we, we, we get... When we don't notice anicca, then we... Things become solid, they're mine, they're good, they're, they're, 
our dear friend and teacher who we've mentioned, Ajahn Sujito, says the great human tragedy is the, is the way we create others. We other eyes, other eyes. That, that, them. Then it becomes a thing. Then we do that with ourselves too. That and then me, mine. And good and bad. Concepts make things seem so solid. When something's pleasant, it's so easy to then turn it into what I need more of. We get a... People have had beautiful meditations and then come back and wanted it to have it back and notice the frustration of trying to get it back. But when we claim it, not understanding change, we imagine we'll get to a place where it's just pleasant maybe, or where there's just success, or where there's only praise, or there's only happiness. Yet just like the dawn and the dusk, just like the beating heart, the swelling and subsiding of the breath. Things aren't that way. So the nature of our conditions as we explore, we realize are always becoming otherwise. And yet, as Ajahn Chah would say, if we look for certainty, if we look for finding a, a place where we can arrive, where we, we just have health and we have pleasure and we have success, if we look for certainty in that which is uncertain, he says we're bound to suffer. So not understanding change, that creates dukkha. It creates suffering. So we have a peaceful state. Oh, I finally figured it out. Oh, golly. Fourth day on the retreat. Breakthrough. Write it down. Breakthrough. <sighs> then in that moment when we possess it, it's not evil. It's not an evil thing. We possess it. We lean on it. That's called birth. Then, when that state changes, there's a sense of dislocation. Ah, oh, we try to get it back. Birth and then death, lost, and then try to get it back. Grasp at another pleasant sensation. That gets desperate when the mind streams out to sense pleasures. They're not evil, but we feel good and that tastes good and we enjoy that and then but then it dissolves, and then we keep trying to f fill up. And the lack is that things that are impermanent can't fill us up. That's why it's called dukkha. It's anatta, it's not really substantial. It's there and then it's gone. It's not saying it's nothing. 
So we're asking from life what it can't, from conditions what it can't give us. Ajahn Chah said it's like walking up to a river and arguing with it, saying, why are you flowing that way? You should flow that way. Or his classic one, which those of you who know us have heard us say this many times, he said it's like going up to a duck and saying, look, why aren't you a chicken? <laughs> look, quack, quack, quack is all right, but look, you could wake people up. That could be good karma. Come on, just try it. Cockle-doodle-doo. Come on, don't do that kind of quack thing. It's like he said, wanting a duck to be a chicken. And yet wanting a condition, wanting pleasure to last, wanting the calm to last, wanting praise just to be solid just generates stress. And it's all born out of this way that we take things to be solid. That's all traced back to the way we think and assume that these... Because actually there's a stream of perception, but then when we label and then believe that is a kind of chunk, a thing, a reality... It's the cause of suffering. Once the great Deva, the great, a heavenly being, of the 33, one of these subtle beings. The Buddha was in meditation, but this being wanted to come and get some teachings from the Buddha. And so he finally got the Buddha's attention and said, uh, his name was Saka, and this was a famous question he asked the Buddha, and the Buddha gave a a teaching to him. He said, uh, Why do beings wishing to live in peace and harmony end up living in conflict and hate? Why do beings who wish to live in peace and harmony end up living in conflict and hate? See, that's that's what we wish for, but then, you know, we just end up We can see in our world so much fighting. And then the Buddha gave a whole teaching on what what leads to conflict and hate. And he, he first said, well, it's envy and stinginess. Wanting what somebody else has. Resenting, wanting not wanting to give up what I got. Notice that separation. Wanting what somebody else has, not wanting to give up what I got. And then Saka said, oh, thank you, that's good, that's good. But, but what gives rise to envy and stinginess? And the Buddha said, oh, it's, it's liking and disliking. 
starting to separate out, no, 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 I like this, no, I don't like that. It's separating out, I like, don't like that. And Saka said, oh, very good. He said, but how does that come about? And the Buddha traces it back. He says, well, then, you know, desire, this energy that streams out, overlooks what's here, and wants, wants. And the, and the Saka says, yeah, where does that come from? And the Buddha says, hmm thinking, and the Buddha then said, well, Saka then said, and, and what gives rise to that? And the root condition is a very important principle in, in the Dhamma. The root condition that leads to this conf- people living in conflict and hate, even though they wished for peace and harmony, the Buddha used the word papancha. And it means conceptual proliferation. The way when there's actually a stream of sense contact, it's talking about what we do with this sense contact, we put a word on it. That in of itself is, is not bad. But we then believe the word is the reality. We lose touch with the vibrant, mysterious, ever-flickering, changing nature of how it is and then start making it, it's happening to me, me, you, mine. And when we get so dazzled by the acquiring and holding, losing touch with the changing nature, we take what is really unreal, what is like ever-changing, and we, we think it's the real solid stuff. And what is really real, or, or what has enduring quality, we, we think is unreal. You talk about spirit, awareness, it's invisible. Sometimes it seems so unreal. And so what becomes really real is what somebody else has that maybe I want or not, or they're, they're trying to get from me and then resenting. As Ajahn Sajito said, the great human tragedy is this making other. Stripping it of any feeling. Conceptual proliferation can mean just thinking, 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 but even the shortest thought is the first manifestation of it. This, when thinking is tinged with delusion, even the thought I, me, I is the shortest, it's just one little tiny mark. You just have one mark and you take a stream and suddenly it's, it's me happening to me and mine and suddenly you got a you. If, if this bit is me, then that's you. 
then if you create time and now that, that, then and things change, you, you've got then and here and there and things get very complicated. As we practice the proliferating mind, as we start to also bring attention to the body and feelings, most profoundly we can bring attention to our thoughts as well. And start to just be wary of believing all our thoughts. When we believe our thoughts and they are me and mine, then we're tangled inside of them. Someone was sharing that. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I do this? Should I do that? Because it's me and I've got to get an answer. The I have got to get an answer and I'll, I'll arrive at an answer. And yet in a moment of noticing, oh, it's just a pattern. Oh, it's just that. In a moment of letting it just be that, it was still doing its thing, but it was a Nietzsche. It was... Looking to look for me in there is, is suffering. There was letting it be, letting it go. So the Buddha taught and will be looking in the as the retreat goes on, a way of training ourselves in nipapancha, in the slowing, the stopping of this proliferating mind. Realizing that thought is just an approximation. We call it breath, but actually it's vibratory, magical. We call it me, but it's a way of talking. We've all been through so many different experiences. The words are just approximations. We can hold them really lightly and begin to notice the ending of a word and the space between the words, that all the words keep dissolving. Notice all the boundaries of here and there come from being hypnotized by the words that when we start to let words dissolve we realize all the boundaries dissolve when a bubble was flowing down the river and you see it you can say there it is then it pops It's empty, it's not there. Then it appears, it pops. So it is, it isn't, it's good, it's bad. We do this all the time. So am I this way, am I that way? Having to find a definition 
when actually our nature is ever flickering and changing, creates suffering. Therefore, the Buddha said in the Lotus Sutra, this dharma, this reality cannot be described. Words fall silent before it. We can try to talk and encourage, but we start to realize words are just a tool. And that when we allow them to go silent, we can just be connected to the whole. So in the coming days, I'm going to encourage us in Tanisra to really stay with change and realize that this, these experiences are, are ungraspable. And if we want them to be solid, they call us, cause us stress. They're not self, they are just what they are. And that in a moment of letting something be what it is, that can be the difference between heaven and hell. When something is really worrying us, and like on the night of the Buddha's enlightenment, he was challenged by all sorts of voices. He saw his parents wanting him to come back to the palace where his father and his stepmother and fear and doubts. Even after his awakening, he had voices whispering, you're not really enlightened. He didn't have to crush them. He just said, I know you. He just let it be what it is, something that comes and goes. I know you. Notice the difference when we're taking a pattern, struggling with it. Sometimes we, it's been talked about, we try so hard. Try too hard, the sense of me, me trying. One person today had a big breakthrough by just realizing, relaxing, letting things be easy. When the mind wants to make things difficult rather than it having to be me and mine, we can just notice, ah, change. It's not self, it is just what it is letting it be a condition. And that's then letting go.
And in our country now, there's a lot of the opposite of letting go. Back in America, we have lots of voices wanting to otherize, make them them. Or you can just, because of someone's ethnicity or religion or their gender, or gay, they just, and to a way of just channeling blame, loathing. Our problems would be solved when we just get rid of them. It's a really dangerous energy. It's a function of papancha, of believing in me, mine, and that's the problem, them. Totally losing touch with the ground of being. Alienated, separate. Someone asked, well, can there any be any wholesome separateness? Yes. What we're doing is a skillful separating. We're withdrawing from our life just to give space. That's a skillful separation, to reflect on things. We're, when we're stuck to our moods, stuck to our discouragement, by practicing what we've been practicing, giving a little space and discerning it, note, focusing on the feeling, on the mood, on the form, then we have the chance to see it change. We have the chance to get to know it. That's discernment, a skillful giving space, a skillful use of separation. But as we go deeper into noticing things come and go, as we let go, we'll notice every form, every breath, every experience keeps dissolving back into this place where everything merges. In our personal relations, sometimes giving space to each other is very important. That's, that's skillful. Sometimes we say, get off my back means, you know, give some space. And sometimes we need to be able to remove ourselves, to relax, to recharge. Sometimes we even maybe need to not associate with somebody, have a boundary. But it's different from loathing, hating, shutting them out of the heart. When we really practice giving space to noticing change, then every form, every sight and sound returns. And as we go more deeply into, into our present, we can discover that sacred ground where everything merges. So we'll just finish with a quote from Ajahn Chah.
do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace. And your struggles with the world will have come to an end. just as the sun effortlessly shines in all directions. And just a sliver of its light touching this earth powers this planet. It shines just being itself. So too, at the end of this day, we can relax and allow the goodness of our efforts, the goodness of our beings, radiate, just sharing the blessings of our lives above, below, and all around for the welfare of all, like a pebble dropping into a pool, sending effortlessly ripples in all directions. So too with each out-breath, as we relax, not trying to claim our meditation, but just letting go, letting things come and go. May the blessings of our lives touch, extend, suffuse, all space, all forms, blessing all beings. May all beings benefit from our practice. May all beings be free from distress.
May all beings appreciate the peacefulness of our nature. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.